Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach and midlife mentor. And once again, I am so glad to be here with you for this week's episode, which is all about taking a candid and humorous look at aging with acclaimed broadcast journalist and baby boomer, Joan London. Yes, you heard that correctly. And you likely grew up feeling that you knew my guest today. And I am beside myself that she stopped by to chat with me here on the podcast which of course is on Zoom, so I could introduce her to you. The reason you're probably familiar with Joan is because she has done so many amazing things. First, Joan London is the former host of Good Morning America, a journalist, a serious health advocate. She's done all of that. Does that ring a bell? Second, Joan London has been a trusted voice in American homes for more than 30 years. She's an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, motivational speaker, and as I mentioned, a women's health and wellness advocate. Now, let me tell you a bit more about Joan and why I'm so thrilled to have her on the podcast with us today. Like I mentioned, for nearly two decades, Joan greeted viewers each morning on Good Morning America, bringing insight to the day's top stories. Do you remember? I have such warm memories of seeing and hearing Joan on morning television all those years. As the longest-running female host ever on early morning television, Joan reported from 26 countries, covered five presidents, five Olympics, and kept Americans up to date on how to care for their homes, their families, and their health. Today, she continues to be one of America's most recognized and trusted personalities. Joan's a sought-after speaker for events across the country and has even testified before Congress on behalf of the House Ways and Means Committee to advocate for the Family and Medical Leave Act. Joan is also a part of the sandwich generation. She's a mother of seven, including two sets of teenage twins. Like many women in the middle, she's juggled being a working mom while caring for an aging parent and brings this experience to her role as the spokesperson for the nation's leading senior referral service, A Place for Mom a company helping caregivers and families find the right care and resources for their loved one. In June of 2014, Joan was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which required chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. An eternal optimist, she wanted to turn her diagnosis into an opportunity to help others. She blogged throughout her cancer treatment and wrote a memoir called Had I Known?, which documents her battle and reflects on her life and career. You may have even remembered a particularly impactful People magazine cover of hers from that time as well. In fact, Joan's definitely one of the most visible women in America. She has graced the covers of more than 60 magazines and book covers. The bottom line is that Joan London truly exemplifies today's modern working woman. She's here today to talk about her latest book, Why Did I Come Into This Room?, (laughs) which released recently to rave reviews. It's a candid conversation about aging. I mean, come on, that title, Why Did I Come Into This Room? Who hasn't said that just a few times? 
Joan always says, I'm too old for Snapchat, but too young for Life Alert. (laughs) And that just kind of tells you about her sense of humor. In the book, she discusses personal stories, and some are embarrassing and really funny, as well as a scientific look at what happens to a woman's body as she ages. Perfect for us midlife gals. So without further ado, let's dive into this really fun and interesting chat with Joan London. Hi, Joan. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Women in the Middle podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Oh, my God. I'm actually beside myself (laughs) that I have an opportunity like this to talk to you about your book. Why did I come into this room? Because come on, who hasn't done that or felt like that before? You've really hit the nail on the head with this whole aging thing and written the perfect book for women in the middle. So thank you for that. And I just want to start with that basic question is aging is something we all have in common, but it's still so awkward and difficult to talk about sometimes. So why did you decide to write the book? You know, many, many years ago, I think it was after I wrote my first book, um, which was Healthy Cooking and then Healthy Living, and they were big bestsellers. And so the publishing company comes back and says, oh, write another one. And I remember looking at my book agent saying, what am I going to write about next? And he looked at me and he said, you will always write about that which you want to know more about. And he was so right. As I left Good Morning America, I wrote a book about dealing with change. You know, a bend in the road is not the end of the road. When I was going, oh, when we were about to have the first set of twins, um, we wrote, I wrote with a, with a new pediatric nutritionist growing up healthy because I wanted to know more about how, you know, all the, the latest information about feeding babies. Then when I went through cancer, of course, I wrote, had I known all about that journey? And um, so I asked myself that age old question. Okay, so what's going on with me now that I want to know more about aging, of course, <laughs> and how to do it successfully. And, you know, you really hit on something. You said we all go through it, but it does seem to feel like something that you go through alone. Um, And part of that is because all these symptoms that happen, leaky bladders, loss of libido, hot flashes, expanding waistline, they're not really talked about that much. They're not, they're almost like taboo subjects. And I don't really know why, but that was one of my biggest goals to, to bust those taboos, create a, a conversation starter and say, Hey, everybody, everything, you got a leaky bladder, so do I. You got an expanded waistline, so do I. So let's talk about it. And nothing was off limits, as you know, nothing. And I knew when I started down that path, if you're going to talk about, you know, hot flashes and leaky bladders, you better have a sense of humor. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so, so true. You know, one of the things I love about the book though also is like, it's a serious book. It's thick. You can do some arm exercises with it. It has an index. It's a very serious, well-researched book. And the way you organized it, really, uh, I really noticed it. It's about mind, body, and soul. So why did you decide to structure the book that way? Well, obviously, everybody's worried about their, their brain. But to me, the mind chapter was more than that. It was also about the concept of age and how that limit limits us quite often. Oh, I can't do that anymore. I'm too old. And so I wanted to talk about just the concept of age and the restraints that it sometimes puts on us needlessly and to really make people question the 
idea of why that number on that birth certificate is so important. Why is that number that is your age? That is not the best description of you. You can have five women who are all 65 and one can be a marathon runner and one can, you know, be a couch potato, but they'll all be described as a 65 year old woman. It's probably the worst description. And of course, body is obvious. Everything about nutrition and exercise and what goes on in our pancreas and our, and our thyroid and, and how it all changes when you don't have estrogen anymore. Um, and, and sleep and the need for water, all those things were obvious. But to me, the soul was a very important part of this. Because, you know, when you're going down that path of like, what's going on with me, you know, look at down at your waist and you say, I swear to God, I did not eat that many more Tostitos last year. <laughs> and, you know, what happens when you start experiencing some of these things, and all of a sudden, you're having hot flashes, you can't go to sleep, you can't stay asleep, and you can't lose weight like you used to lose weight. And you start to question, I mean, these things are, are, are annoying. They're also embarrassing, but they're also worrisome. And so you start worrying about, oh my gosh, am I like wearing down? Am I falling apart? Am I, is, are any of these like a medical issue? And pretty soon you get to that, you can very easily get to that point where you're saying, am I less appealing? Am I less sexy? And keep going, am I less relevant? And that's a terrible path to go down. But it's one that's not so unusual for a lot of women if they're experiencing it all by themselves. So, you know, to me, it was just really important to talk about all of these things and let everybody know they're, they're not just happening to you. They're happening to every one of us. They are biologically programmed to happen. This is why they're happening. You know, that was all the research in the book. This is what you can do about it. And some of them are just little lifestyle tweaks, little tiny changes that can make a big impact on your life. And, you know, and, and consequently, when it makes an impact on your health, it also makes an impact on your happiness and your sense of well-being. Definitely. And, and I knew that the only way I've done it with every book, it's not just this book, the, the way to really connect with people and make an impact and make a difference is to be unabashedly honest and <laughs> candid and authentic and say, hey, this happened to me too. And it's when you break down that wall that it's, you're not like being preachy and you know telling someone what to do, but you're having this incredibly close, intimate conversation with them, almost like the reader is one of your best friends and you yeah. guys are just kind of talking, you know, you're doing a sleepover out of town somewhere and you're <laughs> talking late at night on the edge of the bed before you go to your bedrooms, you know, it's kind of that kind of talk. And guess what I learned? One of the most important numbers you should know, like we all know, we're supposed to know our resting heart rate and our cholesterol level, blah, blah, blah. But one of the most important numbers that will predict um, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, obesity, all these things is your waist measurement. Now I want to know, have you ever had a doctor when you went for an exam, measure your waist? Well, I have to tell you, I did actually, because <gasps> he was all up to date on the, the current um, heart studies. Wow. You're the first woman really? that I talked to. The first woman 
that can tell me that a doctor took out a measuring tape and measured your waist. He did. And she had a special worksheet. And, you know, she was a woman. Right. And she's retiring this month. And I'm so sad. Oh, well, ask her who she thinks you should go go on to. But most doctors, every woman I talk to really says, nope, no one's ever measured my waist except maybe my tailor. (laughs) Great. Once, you know, I ran right out, Susie, to the drugstore and I got myself, you you know, one of the tape measures. I put it around my waist and, you know, it shouldn't really be over 35. If we're a woman, I think it's 40 for a man. Um, But the good news is if you lose about eight to 10 pounds, you can take an inch off your waist. So, you know, I mean, I try to give like along with the information, then tell them a way that they can combat it. So, I mean, it actually is packed full of useful information. Unbelievable. Yeah. There's so much in the book. I just like sprinkled it in real good measure with humor and quotes so that it would be a fun book to read. That's exactly what it is. And there, what you said about worrying is so important that we get all this stuff, like we're all media savvy. We listen to stuff, we read stuff, we have podcasts, we have books. And then we have all this information, but to put it in perspective, like what you just did with the measurement and to give actual references and research while you're talking about peeing your pants, it's so good. <laughs> so there was another part of the book that, um, that I actually laughed out loud. And it's when you were talking about the whole sandwich generation thing. And it's a pretty significant part of growing older, having kids and parents to to help and and, uh, focus on at the same time. Your perspective was pretty funny and intense dealing with young children, teenagers, (laughs) and your mom all at the same time. And like I said, when you told that story, which I'm going to ask you to tell now, I just laughed. I absolutely laughed out loud. Just the way you, you said that you were buying a double stroller. Oh, oh, it's the, it's the title of chapter three. Um, strollers, cars, and wheelchairs. <laughs> That's it. Oh, my God. And when you and described- I, seriously, I was absolutely buying all three at the same time. My mom was just getting to that point because, you know, my mom never expected to live until 95. She thought she was going to live till about 65. And just think about it. She was um, she was a young woman and yeah, in like 1939, and in the United States, the life expectancy in 1939 was only 59. Like people oh didn't God. expect to live any longer than 59. Oh my God. So she thought she might, you know, she was lucky she'd make it to 60, 65. I remember she always used to say to me, I can't believe I'm still alive, you know? <laughs> and, but um, she's, but she started to fail a little bit, but she was a pretty happy. She was always called Glitzy Glatty. You kind of come to know Glitzy Glatty when you read this I book. I love it. And she she was a effusive. She she was kind of says she was a redhead. And she said, "Yeah, you die until you die." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was taking care of her, and then of course I had teenagers in the house, and I had these little babies. And you know, I I say in the book that when I was 29 years old, which is a pretty average age to get married these days, I got married when I was 29. I married a guy who was 39. And we had three girls. Those girls are all in their 30s now. They have babies and, you know, they're married. Um, But it didn't work out. So I got divorced. Well, 20 years later, when I was 49, I got married again. And again, I married a guy who was 39. (laughs) 
tell you that that second, the second one worked out a whole lot better. But you know, they say statistically we die, you know, seven to 10 years, you know, we live seven to 10 years longer than men. So I kind of figure that it's like, I'm kind of even Steven with them, you know, we should probably go out at the same time. <laughs> and, you know, in this world that we live in today, Susie, we look like we're the same age. Do you know what I mean? Like his hair is silver now. It got all kind of salt and pepper and it's like pretty silver now. And we look like we're the same age, you know, and people have said to me, what's it like, you know, is it, do you have any, what are your thoughts about being 10 years older than your husband? I will say that probably I don't like the idea of griping about things having to do with aging. Right. Because I don't want to say, hey, I'm older than you. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you've had so many time. rich, you've had so many rich experiences, though, by, yeah. uh, well, two marriages and having children at such different ages of when yeah. you had them and then for them to be siblings and be such different ages. And you had twins twice. You have so I, many kids, all those ages. I mean, what a rich family life. Yeah. There's seven. I, I never thought I would ever say to anyone that I have seven kids. <laughs> just, I, like, really? Who are you? <laughs> but I had the three girls while I was working on good morning America. And you know, they're in their thirties. Now they're, 30, uh, 34, 37, and actually 40. Jamie just turned 40. She has two little kids and Lindsay has two little kids and Sarah's married. And it's interesting because when we had the little ones, they were still in high school. And, you know, at that age where they normally kind of turn away from you, we don't uh -huh. want anything to do with you. They went off to college. They were always coming back home. And my husband said to me, you know, it's really kind of unusual. This them being in college and constantly coming back here and wanting to be with us during the summer, that's not normal. It's usually the age that kids are just going off like, you know, they'll, they come back to you and realize how wonderful you, wonderful you are in their twenties when they have to start working and taking care of a house. And right. all of a sudden it's like, ding, ding, ding. Oh, that's everything she did. <laughs> but they kept coming back around. And I think part of it was that our house was fun. Like we had all these little kids running around. I had a party right after the second set of twins uh, was, were born, set of twins was born, I guess. And I remember a bunch of my girlfriends came over, you know, very kind of high powered type A women. And they came in and they saw these little two-year-olds running around the newborns. And they were saying, oh my God, I'm tired of just looking at this. And I found it really interesting because two hours earlier, these four or five European women had come in the door, the caterers that were going to help me with the party. And they walked in and they looked at this, the same thing. And they said, oh, you will never get old. And oh, I wow. thought, wow, that's really interesting. Two sets of eyes can look at exactly the same thing. One can see it as exhausting and the other can see it as exhilarating. Yeah. What a so your mindset is really important. And especially in aging, because if your mindset is that I'm getting older and you know what happens when we get older, we're going to decline. But we've had that programmed into our yeah. brains since we were little kids. And we heard our parents say, oh, help Uncle Charlie out of the chair. He's retired now. He, you know, he needs help. Oh, don't go so fast. Aunt Harriet can't walk that fast. She's getting older. So we have that programming in us. 
And in today's world, you don't have to go by that programming. So you really have to shut it out and say, it doesn't make any difference whether I'm 50 or 60 or 70. I mean, to me in my life, how old I am makes has no meaning to me whatsoever. Yeah, no, I can see that. And I, I, I'm really reflecting on that Bedouin story about that lovely woman Ooh. that really I had to read that twice. Can you share what happened Ooh, there? Because what yes. an eye opener. Yeah, that's that first chapter. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? And, you know, that's always been a saying, but I saw it for real. I took my my older girls, my three older girls, when they were teenagers, they were in high school, and I wanted them to, I wanted to take them to another part of the world where life was totally different. And I had gone to Morocco several times on stories. I had gone there to cover the making of the Jewel of the Nile with Michael Douglas. Ooh. And yes, he is just as dreamy as he seems. <laughs> um, and um, I wanted to take them back there and see how another group of people living on the same planet as we're living on live without any of the amenities that we have. And that way I felt that they'd come back and be more appreciative of everything they have. And by the way, I took my current set of teenagers to on the same trip a, a year or two ago. Wow. Um, and it was with, with the same end result. Um, but on that first trip, we were on our way back from the Sahara desert, driving back to uh, one of the cities. And there were these sheep herders on the side of the road these Bedouin um, sheep herders and my our driver, our guide, he pulled over to the side of the road and he got out and he went over and he asked them if we could go into their tent. You could see this tent, pretty big tent where they all slept at night. And they said, yes. So we all get out of the car and went into the tent and there was this old woman in the tent. I don't know how old she was. I mean, cause she had, her face was so weathered from the desert life. And we sat down and she, poured some hot tea that she had a little like a fire going and put some fresh mint into it, which was really cool. And we started asking all these questions and they said they lived a life pretty much by the stars and the moon. They didn't have any calendars. They, you know, they, they, they moved with the seasons when the weather got bad in one place and, you know, they'd pick up the tent and everything and go. So at one point I said, how old are you? Do you mind me asking? She had no concept of what I was talking about. She, and basically, my guide said to us, they're born out here on the desert. There are no birth certificates. There are no birthdays celebrated because there are no calendars. They just live their life. Boy, I'll tell you, Susie, I got back in the car and I thought, whoa, wait a minute. So when it came time for them to all move on because it was starting to get cold. She wasn't going to say, gee, I'm too old to take down that tent. She'd just take that sucker down, roll it all up, put it on the back of a donkey, and off they would go for like 50 or 100 miles. Right. And what freedom from not mm -hmm. knowing your age. And that it's so fascinated with me because I'm sure you're like me. You put something on and I'll sometimes I'll look at, in the mirror and I'll say, is this skirt too short? For my age, I hate that disclaimer. Well, even right now, can I wear jeans, you know, ripped jeans for my age? It, it, I've done that exactly. And also my hair is really long right now because of COVID. I haven't gotten it done in ages. Uh -huh. And I'm like, I don't know, does somebody 57 have hair like this? Oh, absolutely. 
it doesn't make any difference what age you you are. By the way, that your hair looks good. Oh, thank you. I feel like <laughs> high school. But you know, your question in the book is how how old do I think of myself as? Yes. So do, uh, you, have, do you have an age? Yeah, about 35. All right. Well, they say if you're even close to 50 or older, you'll always pick a an age 10 to 15 years younger than you. Now, I just turned 70. Happy birthday. I can hardly even believe. I think it happened in some altered universe. <laughs> Not here in the universe where I'm living, but whatever. Um, that's what they tell me. Um, and I have always thought of myself as 45. I kind of got off the age train at, at 45. And when I look in the mirror, when I think of myself, I think of myself as 45. And that's kind of how I live my life, I, I think. I can tell. Like, you look the same as you did when I grew up watching you on TV. Ah. <laughs> well, I take super good care of myself and my skin. I represented a skincare line for 10 years. Your skin is downright dewy. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. That's nice. And I'm, I mean, I really take good care of it. And, and I make sure I like I am a fiend about getting enough sleep. Now you're talking to somebody who got five hours of sleep. If I was lucky every night for 20 years while I was doing hosting good morning America. But these days I've learned how important it is. You know, um, when you sleep at night, uh, that is the chance that your brain kind of like cleans everything out. I mean, I could go on, on into this neurogenesis is something we can all do, which keeps your cognitive thinking. And neurogenesis is the creation of new neurons. When you challenge your brain, that's creating new neurons. And when you go outside and you do power walk or you do exercise of any kind, any kind of aerobic exercise, you're pumping blood and oxygen and nutrients up to your brain. And those, you can create new neurons, but the ones that you create with exercise are more adept at connecting to the central system And the more you do that, the more you can slow down your cognitive decline. But interestingly, there's a byproduct of neurogenesis and that kind of that stuff kind of floats around in your brain. And at night, when you get really good sleep, it washes it out. Now, if you don't get good sleep and it doesn't get washed out, you probably wake up with that kind of foggy feel like almost a little hungover, but you know, you didn't drink. It's just kind of a foggy feel. That's why. So it's as important as it is to exercise. It is equally important to get good sleep, like really seriously important to get. I good am sleep. so glad you mentioned this. Sleep is one of my goals. Yeah. Um, in 2021, I fall asleep quickly, but I don't get enough sleep. Oh, you're lucky. But you, so why don't you get enough sleep? Do you wake your, do you wake up to an alarm clock? Um, I, not that much anymore that I'm home-based and home-based is awesome. Um, yeah, me, I, I agree. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's amazing. But I guess it's just the, the rhythm of the house. You know, yeah. the problem is I don't go to bed early enough. So oh, you and me both, that's my nemesis. It is. That's my one lifestyle choice that is not the best for my health. Consequently, I, I tried desperately to sleep longer and longer in the morning without anybody else in the house realizing that I'm still asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you mastered that. That's amazing. 
Well, there is one physical thing I wanted to talk to you about. Another area of the book where I, I did laugh out loud, I lolled, was when you explained um, this bladder story <laughs> that was in the bathroom at a fancy black tie event. And it just cracked me up because I just shared a bladder story in my podcast a couple of weeks ago. So you got to tell us what happened in the bathroom. And I've had more women tell me that they peed their pants when they read this story. <laughs> Hysterical. So let's start with the premise. You know, there's something called the Pavlovian response. People probably learned it in biology in school that, you know, there was the doctor, Dr. Pavlov, and he, you know, rang the bell, fed the dog, rang the bell, fed the dog. And after a while, he could just ring the bell and the dog would drool. Your bladder is kind of the same. Your bladder knows where the bathroom is. And sometimes when you're on the way, you got to beat that Pavlovian response to the bathroom before it wins. 100%. And my gynecologist, I think, calls it the, the, the lock and the key response. As soon as you get home, you put the lock in the door and your bladder says, oh, I know that sound. And it's I, so it's true. The it's the race to the bathroom. So I went to this big, big, fancy gala, and I was in a like a body fitting, uh, all covered with sequins gown. And of course, I had a Spanx garment on underneath <laughs> in order to wear that dress and look like that. And so I needed to pee. So I go into the bathroom. I think it was at the Waldorf somewhere and I'm in the bathroom and now do you know how hard it is to pull up a heavy beaded gown up above your boobs and try to hold it there while you pull down a Spanx I can't it. and you have that little purse that you're in your <laughs> hand well let me tell you that it's probably not possible when the Pavlovian response is like beating you to the punch so bottom line is I had this very, ex very expensive Spanx garment in my hands that was wet. <laughs> and I'm like, what do I do? You know, hoping nobody outside even heard the rumbling of what was going on. And there was no putting this Spanx garment into this teeny little tiny bag that was all glittery. So I stuffed it into that little place that they give you, that little box <laughs> in there in the bathroom. And I thought... You have no choice, Joan. And I dropped my gown to the floor and I walked back out into this huge gala affair commando. <laughs> and all I couldn't I couldn't get it out of my mind as I was talking to some of these big wigs that I was standing there bare assed. <laughs> it's the best story. It's such a good one. I mean, you know, it would have been funny enough if there wasn't a glittery gown. <laughs> But the glittery <laughs> gown, juggling the purse, the spanks, and then and those gowns are heavy. They are heavy. But the funniest thing I think is what happened is in your mind as you were sauntering around without <laughs> underwear on for the rest of the evening. And which, you almost felt you almost felt like everybody knew, right? But of course, nobody knew except me, and they they just wondered why I kept laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I've had so many embarrassing. Uh, shuffles to the washroom from the oh, front yeah. door. It's it's so urgent. And I guess that's a good thing to practice, you know, to really work on it not being urgent because there is. Well, I there are things we can do, and I mean, you read them in the book. I mean, and I really I devoted 
a whole chapter to all <laughs> kinds of different things. I mean, obviously I gave the medical kinds of things you can do, but just the everyday things. And, you know, I mean, you really have to, you can kind of train your bladder. You can go with that mindset that you're not going to wait until, oh my God, I have to go. You're going to go more often and you're going to wait until you fully fully gone. Otherwise, you know, sometimes people are like me, type A, I got so many other things to do. I don't have time for this. And you get up and go and then you realize in eight minutes, you have to go again. There's a lot of things that you can do. And of course, there's the age old exercises that we can do down there. I forgot, what are they called? A kegel or something. Ke- kegel, kegels. Kegel, kegel exercises. <laughs> See? Thank you, brain. And I remember my, my primary care physician She said to me one day, she said, just do this. Every time you come to a red light and you stop at a red light, do 10 or 15 Kegels. And once they tell you that, it's in your head and you do like red light. Okay, what does that mean? I'm going to do a bunch of Kegels. She said, and you can then look at the car next to you and they'll never know that you're doing exercises down there. So are you doing those exercises at the lights? At every light, baby, at every <laughs> light. <laughs> Amazing. Well, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, I loved your new idea for a bucket list because I have to say the whole bucket list concept bugs me. I don't want to talk about um, what I'm running out of time to do in the same yeah. breath as what I want to do. I, I don't like that. So you propose a happiness plan. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, instead of a bucket list, I mean, it's fun, you know, on my on my Pinterest page, I have a bucket list, like all the pretty places that still might be fun to go. Um, But to me, it's more important to create a happiness list. It's a kind of a bucket list, but it's all the things that you can do that would make you happy. And I'm not talking about, you know, going to Kathmandu. I'm talking about, I like jigsaw puzzles. So I wanted to get to that point where I could sit and do a jigsaw puzzle without feeling guilty that I was just sitting doing a jigsaw puzzle. Oh, By the way, I got there. And um, I, I'm, I've really got a, about a stack of about 40 jigsaw puzzles on the other side of the office that I've done just during this <laughs> pandemic. I tried to take them yesterday and give them to a senior community that's not too far from me because I thought I would do a little post of me doing that and remind people that today is Giving Tuesday, but they wouldn't take anything because of the pandemic. They won't let anything in from the outside, which is fantastic. They're really taking, that's really protecting their seniors, but it, wow. it blew my idea for a Facebook post. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to get to that point where I could sit and read my book because I'm a voracious reader and I love reading books. Um, without feeling guilty. You know, when, when I was in my 30s, and even in my 40s, whenever I would think about sitting during the middle of the day and reading a book or doing a puzzle, I would look at that as kind of selfish or yeah. like super lazy. Like, yeah. what am I thinking? And it took me a long time to realize that that's part of self-care. Oh my God. It, and it's not, it, it is not selfish. Going to get a mani-pedi is not selfish. It's taking care of yourself so you feel good about yourself. Taking that nice long bath and putting on some candles and making the whole place smell good, that is taking care of yourself. There's nothing selfish about it because when you take care of yourself, 
you're happier. So you're a, a better wife, a better mom, a better daughter, a better everything, and a better friend because you feel happier and more fulfilled. So, but it took me a long time to get there, but there's lots of things. And, you ha- and this is an exercise where I give you the challenge of thinking about those things. Like what things did you like when you were young that you might like to do now? And I had a woman who read this and, and she came back to me and said, I really was good at art when I was young. And I remember I, and she said, and after I read your book, I went to a Michael's or somewhere and she said, I got a bunch of art supplies. I got some canvases. I got some easels. She said, and I'm having the time of my life and I'm actually doing paintings for people. Amazing. And, you know, I mean, that's just one example. You know, they say that you should, the three things that are going to determine how successfully you age, staying engaged in life, most important. Um, isolation is the worst thing. Two is social connections, having friends that you can call and gab with and share your happiness and, and as well as your sorrows. And the third thing is a sense of purpose. And that doesn't mean you have to go and volunteer at the hospital or something. It can be a garden that needs you to wake up, put on your clothes and get out there and pull out the weeds. It's something that gives you a sense of purpose in life. Um, and those are the three things. And we can work at those things. We can think about like, what did I always like? And did you always like, you know, uh, <clears throat> some kind, something in the arts? Did you play the piano when you were young? Whatever it is. And by the way, we have a grand piano in our house and nobody really plays it. Somewhere along the line, I, I got this thing with some intention, obviously. <laughs> and one of these days, I swear, I keep saying to myself, go down there and try to learn it again. Because learning something completely new, because at this point, it would be completely new to me a language, an inst- a musical instrument, anything like that. That's the kind of thing that you really need to do to challenge your brain. Oh my to, gosh. To retain Absolutely. your cognitive thinking, challenging your brain and exercise. Those are the two things that are going to make you retain your cognitive thinking. Oh my gosh. So when I turned 50, I was thinking just like what you said, I was thinking, what are the things I used to love? Yeah. And I've seen it so many times that what we what used to bring us joy is highly likely to bring us joy again. Yeah. And I identified tap dancing. Oh, really? Have you been doing it? I have not since pandemic. And I'm oh, not very good. Tap. You can order them online. I saw that you can order like little tap area for the floor. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I found it turns out somebody in my community is a teacher for adult women for tap. And it was scary and exciting and challenging to think about. And I didn't want to fall over because kind of slippery, but <laughs> I loved it. I just loved it. So Susie, you just hit on something. Exercise is good, but one of the best kinds of exercise, I mean, for our brain is it can be hip hop. It can be um, any kind of aerobic dance where you're following an instructor. It can be tap. It can be anytime you are listening to an instructor tell you to do something with your body, you process it, mm. and then, you're, then you ask your body to do it. That's one of the best forms of exercise for your brain. So a couple more things I just, I'm, I really want to ask you about. So one of my favorite chapters is decline to decline, oh. right? And how it's up to us to keep our fire burning and retain our love of life. And I love how you introduced that topic. So how can we do that better? 
Well, I mean, again, this is a mindset and, you know, this is <clears throat> finding ways. I mean, especially like during this whole pandemic we've been in, it's just kind of an example that isolated people and created environments where people just kind of like retreated to their couch and, you know, started a fire and watched TV. But <laughs> it's up to us to go out there. Having trouble sleeping at night? Get up in the morning, go outside, get the sunshine first thing in the morning, because that like sets your brain. And it kind of sets what they call is the circadian rhythm. And if you're having trouble sleeping at night, and a lot of people are during this pandemic, get out there, try to get the fresh air, the sunshine. If you can't, you can work out in your house. But the sunshine will help not only help you wake up and help you just enjoy nature, but it will also help you sleep at night. I mean, all these little things that you can do. I gave so many teeny tiny life tweaks in that chapter um, about drinking more water, about getting enough sleep, about being outside. And a lot of it also is really about telling yourself every morning, maybe even before you put your feet on the floor, this is going to be an awesome day. Yeah. Because interestingly, the things that we say to ourselves all day long are the most important things we say. Exactly. Because your thoughts create how you feel. It's so, yep. so good. Yep. So one of the things that comes up all the time on the Women in the Middle podcast and in my communities is the emotion of fear. And one of the things that really stood out to me when you talked about um, <clears throat> how fear can hold you back and your surprise at the way that you ended up embracing public speaking when it was something oh. you were so fearful about for years. So what somebody like me, you know, looks at what you did and how you're always talking to people and you were so successful on TV with Good Morning America and everything. How could you be afraid of public? Speaking? I know I have people. Used that to say, okay. So, so when I, before I was about um, 45, I really did have a fear of public speaking. I just dreaded it. I was, I mean, fortunately, I worked on a show where you never knew where you were going to be in the world on any given day. So I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I would love to have come and done this and accepted this award. <laughs> but, you know, I can't promise I'm going to be there because we don't know where we never know where we're going to be. I got out of it. I, I would get like, like a red rash on the front of me because I was so stressed out. And people would say to me, how can you get stressed out being in front of 150 or 400 people when 23 million people see you every single morning? And I would say, yeah, but I don't see any of them. And so when I left Good Morning America, I, I decided I wanted to get over that. And I went, I signed up with Tony Robbins, you know, guru of motivational speaking on a two year tour. And we did um, two or three speeches a month but he did them in these huge venues, like in the, you know, the basketball arena in Atlanta. And he'd have 26,000 people there. And in the beginning, it was like almost surreal walking out on stage. I almost don't remember it. I was so fearful and everything I was going to say was on the teleprompter. And, you know, I used to watch Tony before he would go out on the stage and he would jump up and down and, and like put his hands in the air. And he's got these mammoth hands. <laughs> and, and I used to say like, what's going on with you? And he'd say, Oh, I'm just getting my revved up. I'm getting my blood moving in my body. I'm getting myself into that. And he would like bound onto the stage. 
this fusive ball of energy. Right. And that's what, you know, people really felt. And he transferred, I'm telling you, he transferred that energy to 26,000 people. And, you know, I watched him. He was a great role model. And little by little, it was kind of like baptism by fire. But I'm here to tell you that I got over my fear of speaking. I even hated writing a speech. I felt like I didn't have anything. Like, what do I have to say? <laughs> well, I needless to say, I've gotten over that like seven books later. And, uh, and, I, and now public speaking is a huge part of my career. I probably give, well, before the pandemic, 40 speeches a year. Like I'm on the road every week, week in and week out to everywhere in the country giving speeches and loving every minute of it. Like I now love, I am a walking, breathing example that you can turn a complete fear into a complete passion. I love it now. I'm, it's something I'm good at. I, I love writing my speeches for every speech. I mean, it's such a turnaround that I almost can't believe it, but it, I am like a, I'm a role model for everyone because they say that one of the top things, if you ask people their fears, public speaking is maybe the number one answer. Absolutely. And I love how it surprised you. Like, oh, it totally surprised me. Yeah, it's amazing. So that really stood out. And then the other thing that I'm sure, you know, anybody that watched you over the years remembers clearly is how much courage it must have taken you to appear on that People magazine, uh, old, bald, and beautiful, you know? And, And I wanted to ask you about that because, again, fear, it comes up so much uh, in midlife, and it's, it's just another example of your courage. So what was going on with you that you made that decision? I was very fearful of doing that. I had been, I'd gone through my first round of uh, chemotherapy, and, you know, you lose, I, well, you lose your hair right away, but I had called Robin Roberts at Good Morning America because I knew she had been down the same path. And <clears throat> she said, shave your head. Don't wait for it to fall out because own it. You be the one that does it. Don't let the cancer do it to you. So I went the next day and I walked into a, a, a hair salon, but not my normal hair salon. I was afraid they would talk me out of it. <laughs> I, went into an, I went into one where I don't normally go. And, um, and I said, I'd, I would need somebody to shave my head. And these two women behind the counter looked at me like, is she like going off the deep end or what? And this tall um, kind of South American guy was standing there, one of the hairdressers. And he said, follow me. And he <laughs> took me back to the back of the salon where there weren't any people. And he took that thing out. And it's the weirdest thing in the world for them to go. And it's, it almost like vibrates on your head. Men are used to it. But I mean, it was, I was, I did it myself. It was kind of like becoming, you know, warrior, G.I. Joan, you know, I was going into my warrior mode. And, but then um, September, I was diagnosed in June, September rolled around and People Magazine had been calling me and calling me, wanting me to do this cover. And the senior editor said, look, you can do it. We'll, we'll photograph you with a wig on. We'll photograph you with a scarf. And then we'll, if it's okay with you, we'll photograph you bald and you can take a look at the pictures and, and see if you're okay with it. And I don't think I could tell you that that morning when that crew walked in from People Magazine, I don't think I knew in my head whether or not I was going to go through with it or not. I, I wasn't sure yet. Um, 
we did the photographs and then finally we cleared the room and it was in my foyer, kind of this big, you know, empty space that um, he was so close. It was unbelievable with all the lights. And I took the, you know, there I was bald and I saw, and he comes in and starts photographing me. And I said, you got to dig down inside because if you're going to do this, it's got to be there for everybody who sees it. And somehow I dig, dug deep down inside. And I'm, I'm so glad that I went through with it and that I did it um, because I really, I've had so many people respond to that. I remember one woman said to me one day, when I got diagnosed, I, the first thing I thought of was your picture on the cover of People magazine. And she said, it wasn't your face. It was your smile and your eyes. That's what I was remembering. And I thought she got through it. So if she could muster up that smile when she was in the middle of chemo, I can do this. I can get through this. Like that one woman made the whole thing worthwhile. But, you know, I taught my girls, my older girls, I remember a, a, a quote, because you know, I love quotes. You have to want it more than you're afraid of it. Yeah. And I remember my, my daughter, Sarah, who's now in her thirties, she was, uh, she was in high school and I sent her on one of these trips across, um, I don't know what, some, some Central American country, you know, hiking across Honduras or something. <laughs> and she said that she got almost to the top of this mountain and they stopped for a rest. And she was thinking to herself, how did I let mom talk me into this? <laughs> and I can't make it up the rest of this mountain. And then she said, as soon as I said, mom, I remembered what you always said. You got to want this more than you're afraid of it. She said, and that made me get my butt up off the ground and keep walking and getting to the top of the mountain. I was like, God, she remembered something I said. <laughs> and she actually found it helpful. But that was a really fearful thing to do because I was afraid somebody might, I don't know, take it the wrong way, think I was sensationalizing my disease. But you know, when I the the editor of People magazine really kind of came to me and said, You you might not have an idea at this point in time because you've you know, everything's just so overwhelming to you, but this could really inspire a lot of people. You really need to, to go with this. And I looked at the picture and I had one thought, thank God I have an oval head. <laughs> you have a beautiful head. I have to tell you, but you know, your eyes really, that's what I remember about the photo. Yeah. And it, it made such an impression of courage, you know? Oh, thank so, you. Wow. Thank you for doing that. And just one more thing I really loved about your book was you mentioned it, how you integrated the quotes. Oh, I love quotes. Such a gorgeous job with the quotes, the way they're at the beginning of a chapter, they're integrated throughout. And the other thing that really, really stood out was the photographs in your book are full color. What yeah. a treat that was. I, I insisted on that. If you get the regular book, I mean, they aren't obviously in the, the ebook, but if you, uh, you know, I know that I came from the world of television and people are used to seeing me in living color and women are the main people that read my book and they like me to take them inside my world. And to me, I, you have to fight for this these days in publishing. But yeah. I said, no, they have to be color pictures. Oh my gosh. It really stood out. And what a fun little treat that Oprah selfie was. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was on her show and not, I was on Oprah, the Oprah show a bunch of times, but this was on a show she did more recently. Where are they now or something? And so while I, while I was there, my daughter was there with me, Sarah. 
and we did a little selfie. And I thought that those are those things like share that with the other women. That was the cutest thing. I thought, oh, my God, Joan still wants a, a selfie. That is so yeah, cool. Yeah, of course. Oh, and I have to say, it totally cracked me up on the back cover. You have a quote from your gynecologist and <laughs> <laughs> the, about the importance of talking to your doctor more and speaking candidly about aging. And, you know, that just cracked me up. And our gynecologists and our doctors, they're so important to us now uh, more than ever. And I guess really that's what your book is about. Aging, as you say, it ain't for sissies and you have to be prepared and you have to speak more candidly all the time. So what's your best advice for women in the middle as they work on their on different ways to embrace this next chapter? You know, I have a quote that I love, which is years may wrinkle the skin, but to give up our enthusiasm, that wrinkles our soul. Mm -hmm. You know, so to me, I mean, enthusiasm is one of the most important ingredients. You know, you can have a lot of people and some can be a lot smarter than the others, but it's the ones with the enthusiasm that are going to end up with the incredible life, the interesting life, because they're going to be open to opportunities and and they're going to say yes to things and they're going to go into these all these different things with enthusiasm to me that's just what creates you know i have so many people that say to me oh wow you've had such a great life you're so lucky no it's not because i'm lucky it's because a page out of my playbook is that if anyone ever asks you if you want to do something just say yes oh i love it i love it go figure out how to do it but just say yes. <laughs> oh, my God, you nailed it. So again, the name of the book is Why Did I Come Into This Room? A Candid Conversation About Aging by Joan London. It's available everywhere. And Joan, thank you so much for sharing so candidly in this book here on the podcast. And always you've you've been such a role model for women our age as we've grown up right along with you. And now you're still helping us with the trials and tribulations of life with your honest take on aging so we can all be more prepared. What a treat it's been to share this time with you. Thanks, Susie. It's been my pleasure. All right. Great interview, right? Joan London has had such an interesting, rich life. I'm sure you took a lot from getting to know her in this interview. I love what she said about the three things that will determine how successfully you age. Staying engaged in life, having social connections, and having a sense of purpose. She's really a quintessential woman in the middle, too. She fits right into everything we talk about here on the podcast. Another thing she said that really struck me was her emphasis on always learning something new. That was so interesting because of how much fear we midlife gals typically feel about new things at our age. So good. And then her personal example of the way she even surprised herself turning her fear of public speaking into a bona fide passion. Wow. Her message to her kids, I love that one too. It's a great message to all of us. When tackling new and sometimes hard things in life, just remember, you have to want it more than you're afraid of it. I love it. Wow, that was so much fun. What a life Joan has lived, and she is so generous about sharing it with us. Okay, that's it for this episode. As you know, my focus as a midlife coach is to help you waste less time spinning and feeling stuck about aging, about empty nest, about relationships, about career, about being more compassionate toward yourself, about all of it. It's time to get excited about your life again. Remember, 
being the queen of your brain domain, it really is the best way to be, and I am here to help. For show notes and links, head over to www.coachwithsusie.com. To get your hands on nine secrets to get unstuck in your 50s, go to www.susierosenstein.com forward slash nine secrets. And to check out my group coaching program and learn how to go from last on the list to finally first, head over to www.iamfinallyfirst.com. Let's do this, ladies. It's time for you to put yourself first one thought at a time. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. 